You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. About what God is doing in our summer camps. For those of you that don't know, our children, our youth, amen, are a part of involved in an opportunity to go to church camp, and it's just about two and a half hours away, and so we've had uh, people there last week, this week, next week. We'll have other weeks, uh, another week in July, and so God does great things, and we thank God for that. Praying our kids get the Holy Ghost this week, amen, afresh and anew, and God blesses them. I want to go to Genesis chapter number two, and uh, tonight... We are going to look in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start there. So everybody say, God bless His Word. Amen. So God's Word, amen, is here for us tonight. Uh, We are looking at the origin of humankind. So the genesis of humanity. And we, we sort of passed in the first five weeks the creation sort of topic subject that that whole context, and now we're looking at the first mentions of humanity and what the Word teaches us about that. Last week, we looked at the origin of humankind, where we were, number one, we were created by God, and then number two, how we were created with gender distinction, male and female. So we're still under this point under uh, uh, the, the, the origin of humankind. So created with gender distinction, male and female. Sorry, I don't have a handout for you here tonight, but we are going to continue on some very, very relevant topics. I believe they're relevant for uh, cultural issues that we are addressing today. And my goal and my aim is this, is not to add anything that would be uh, considered or construed as my opinion, but just to take the word of the Lord. What does God's word teach us? What does God's word tell us? Last week, we looked at gender distinction through creation and gender roles. We looked at gender responsibilities. And now, tonight, we want to look at, if we can, under this point of gender distinction, I'm, we're on the third point. The first point under that second point was gender roles, gender responsibilities. And now I want to look at gender inter, interdependency, gender interdependency and relationship, gender interdependency. God made us male and female, and he made us, although absolutely distinct, He made us completely interdependent. So that is a major point. So if you're writing down, if you want to write something down, that's a major point. God did make us distinct, but he made us absolutely distinct, but he made us completely interdependent. You did not get here by a mother alone. You did not get here by a father alone. And it was God's will that it would take a male and a female to birth a living being, to bring about another living being. God instituted this. God established this. And so he makes us 
completely interdependent. The first thing we could acknowledge, and that the obvious thing, was that physically, for posterity, for procreation, he made us interdependent. We cannot be an institution unto ourselves. There is no matter how much we will it to be the case, that is not possible. We have to be interdependent. We are interdependent. One of the things today that is a really, really strong, bold argument in our culture today is that a woman has a right over her body uh, in, in the sense that she can do whatever she wants. And so the moment there is a uh, the moment there is conception and there is a growth within her body, that that growth then is hers. She can do with it whatever she wants. And so it's the woman's right if she wants to terminate the pregnancy, if she wants to do whatever, she can do that on her own. She has that right. Um, the, the man does not have a right. If a man, if a man says, I want to have a child, he can't just go out and say, well, I have a child. I want to have a child. He has to have some dependency. He has to have, uh, uh, he has to depend upon the opposite sex. God designed it that way. And so in our world today, you know, we're, we're trying to say, well, I have a right and I can do this and I can be all. No, you don't. God made it so that we were interdependent. And his intention was that there would be an established uh, uh, relationship there, that there would be a coming together, that there would be a male and a female that would be together in that process. And they, they did not have the right individually to create as well. They do not have the right individually to terminate because that right belongs to God. That is God. It is God who gives life. It is God who takes life. So we as male and females were created absolutely distinct, but we are completely interdependent. Now I want to talk uh, if we can about marriage, because we see this, we see this most pronounced within the context of marriage. And here in Genesis chapter number two, we have the first mention of marriage. We have some teaching that is going on in this first mention of marriage. And we want to highlight that here. And we don't want to skip over this. I would first like to uh, just make note that marriage, marriage is the first institution that God establishes. Marriage is the first human institution that God establishes. He establishes the, 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 the concept of a marriage and, and furthermore the concept of family before God even ever establishes the church or he establishes any other kinds of uh, societal regulas, regulations, if you will. Marriage was first instituted and established. Here, let's go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. He's just talked about in chapter 2 the creation of woman, where we read that last week, the distinction. And now he says, therefore. What's the therefore? Well, because woman was taken out of man, God created them male and female. And now, aha, there's two, there's Adam, there's Eve, there's male and female. Therefore shall a man leave his mother and father and shall cleave 
unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So here we have the first mention of marriage. And this is very important. Now, the law, as Moses is writing this, he's writing thousands of years later. We know that. And so this is not just the first telling of everything, but he's speaking to the present-day audience or context about what he's writing about, what took place when God created Adam and Eve. And that's where the therefore comes into play. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This is God that is establishing this. This is God that is giving us, if you will, the parameters, the qualifications, the requirements for what we would call marriage here. And then we go to verse number 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So he tells us that God instituted this, and here's what marriage looked like first. And because this is what marriage looked like first, this then, he says in this text, is what marriage should look like now. So I'm going to give to you, if I can, the four laws of marriage. Four laws of marriage. Um, I think, uh, oh my goodness, my mind's... uh, Jimmy Evans is... um, I think he's a type of a Pentecostal preacher. I'm not really sure. But he has some good marriage stuff, and you can find out. I don't agree with everything he says, but he's got a lot of good stuff. And so he uses this. I think he calls them maybe uh, uh, has a new book coming out. I can't remember the name of it. And I think he's re-coined it and changed some of the wording here so that every word sort of rhymes or at least starts with the same letter. But here's the four laws of marriage that we can take out of Genesis 2 and 24 through 25. So the first thing God, Moses writes here in Genesis, we have it given because this is what marriage looked like first, this is what marriage should look like now. The first thing, the first law of marriage we see here is is the law of priority. Everybody say priority. Priority. Look at what he says. He says, for this cause shall a man leave. Everybody say leave. Leave. He leaves his father and his mother. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. The first thing we see in the, the law of marriage is that there is a priority of relationships that takes place in the life of the husband or the spouse. He leaves his father and his mother. Doesn't mean he doesn't love his father and mother. Doesn't mean he doesn't like his father and mother. Doesn't mean that he doesn't still enjoy certain things. But now he leaves father and mother. There is a new priority of relationship in his life. In God's eyes, he has a responsibility to his spouse and to his family like none other. And God is the one that instituted this. So let me say this, mothers and fathers, there will come a day where your children will turn on you and you will not be their number one priority and responsibility. Can I get an amen? God created the parent for the child 
not the child for the parent. I think as parents, sometimes we can forget that, and that can mess with us a little bit. God did not put the children in our life for us. He put us here for the children. Your children is never going to appreciate you as much as they ought to until you're gone. Right? Because that's the way it is. They'll never be able to understand until you've already passed that moment. And the best thing that they can do is that they could do better and, and, and take the good that they have and do better and, and put that into their family, their priority. So the law of marriage, the first law of marriage is priority. Now, your spouse is your number one priority. You enter into covenant here. The second thing we see is it says... He leaves his father and mother, and look at what it says, and shall cleave unto his wife. He's got to cleave unto his wife. That, that word there denotes effort. And, and, and the big W word that we don't like, work. The second law of marriage is the law of work. Marriage takes work. Some said amen louder than others. <laughs> Some are afraid to say amen for fear of who's sitting next to them. Come on, let's just be honest with ourselves. All relationships take work. And if marriage is one of the most sacred and valuable relationships that God's given to us, why should we think it doesn't take any less work? It takes much work. I, I retweeted something yesterday. I can't remember... Caitlin, you reminded me of it. I don't know where she's at. Um, marriage is the Mack truck running through your life, revealing all of your, I can't remember, like human failures and shortcomings. I was like, wow, that is so, so true. Can I get a witness in the house? Nobody leave me up here by myself. It, it, it runs through your life, just man, showing you where all your shortcomings are, where all your in, incompletions are and things. Marriage takes work. This is a law of marriage. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how good looking you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. None of that stuff is going to shortcut the fact that it's going to take work. There's going to be some effort involved. And then the third law of marriage is the, the law of unity. And they shall be... One flesh, one flesh. This right here testifies to how much, though we are created male and female, absolutely distinct, we are completely interdependent. When God brings together a man and a woman, when he brought together Adam and Eve, they became one flesh. Now, they did not cease to be individual souls. When we stand before God, we are not going to stand necessarily as husband or wife or son and daughter or pastor or saint or whatever you want. We're going to stand as an individual before God. But there is something that takes place here on this earth. They become one flesh. They become one unit. And that is manifest. That harmony is manifest in the offspring or is intended to be manifest in the offspring. The third law of marriage is the law of unity. There has to be unity. In, ever, in, in order, uh, the Bible says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? In order for there to be unity, 
there has to be coordination and there has to be compensation. There has to be coordination and there has to be compensation. They, they have to coordinate. Hey, we're, we're going to do this together. They have to get in tune. They have to be of the same mind. And then there has to be compensation. There's times in life where you pick up the slack for the other person. Have you ever broke a toe or broken a finger? Or you, God bless you, whoever said no. Whenever you injure a part of your body and you see somebody, you ever, you, you've done something and, you, and you're sort of limping along, the rest of your body gets in compensation mode so that I can go from point A to point B, we're going to compensate. We're going we're gonna to walk maybe a little out of rhythm, but we're doing it to help because we understand that that this knee or this ankle or this leg or this toe is weak. And so the rest of the body, we're going to compensate. Can I tell you, there's going to be seasons in life, in a marriage, where you have to compensate. That's true of all relationships, but especially in a marriage. And here's what God said, they shall be one flesh. You don't just wake up and say, well, hey, if you're not giving 100%, I'm out of here. No, that's not how this works. There has to be a unity. We are striving together for the survival of this relationship that God has ordained. And finally, the fourth law of marriage was the state that we saw that they were in. The Bible says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. When God brought Adam and Eve together, there was a purity. The fourth law is the law of purity. There was a purity. They were not defiled. They were not, uh, uh, they, they were naked and not ashamed. They were bare. They were vulnerable. There, there was an innocence there. There was a purity that was there. And this is what God said ought to be. Whenever a man and a woman come together in Christ, that is what God intends. Keep that uh, uh, relationship pure. Keep the marriage pure. Keep it undefiled. Keep purity in that relationship. Don't bring in other stuff and baggage and evil things from the outside world, but keep a purity in your love, in your desires, in your, your, your serving and your living for one another. And so these were the four laws of marriages that we could see, the, uh, the laws of marriage that we could see taken out of Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. So we see here that we are completely gender inter interdependent, if you will. We are gender interdependent. Now, does that mean that we do not have uh, meaning without the other? Absolutely not. Of course we have meaning without the other because we are created individually by God, made in His image, male and female. We are made in the image of God. But God had a desire and God had a purpose. He had a design. In that design also, uh, uh, it, it includes human sexuality. And this is something that we need to talk about, we need to address because our world, as the product of all other uh, civilizations of antiquity before us, is very obsessed 
with human sexuality. In fact, when you go back to the Old Testament, many times when we're reading through the text, Scripture does not speak of the vile things that they were partaking of in detail, but it very much lets us know the world in which God was dealing with in times like in the days of Noah. There was such vile immorality. In the times of Abraham, when God brought him out, Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah. When the children of Abraham leave Egypt and they go back into Canaan, the Old Testament actually says, God actually told them in Deuteronomy, you are going in there and you are going to drive out seven nations. And he named those seven nations. And he said, you are in essence, you are the agents of God. I am sending you as as judgment, if you will. You're going to go in there and you're going to drive them out. And the reason he gave for it was their idolatry, but with that idolatry, everywhere in the Old Testament that there was massive idolatry, there was always gross immorality that went along with that idolatry. It was so bad that God says, I'm going to use you to drive them out. And he warns the children of Israel. He said, be careful. Don't take anything that they have. Don't try to, don't try to emulate or example anything that they've done because if it gets in you, it will destroy you. He even told the children of Israel, don't get this. He said, don't even look at their images. Don't pay attention to their artwork or their idols. Don't pay attention to their designs because the entirety of their culture is so gone and so lost that it will affect you. Wow, isn't that amazing parallel to what we have today where we are inundated nonstop, 24-7, if you will, constantly with images. We have screens everywhere. We have screens on our phone. We have screens on our in our every room of our house. We have screens in our car. We have screens in our refrigerators. God help us. We got screens in the bathroom these days. I mean, we're, we're, that's how wealthy we are. That's how crazy we are in America. Maybe you don't. Hopefully you don't. I certainly don't, but amen. But you know what I'm saying? We have images everywhere, everywhere now coming at us. And the Lord told them, he said, be careful for how you even look at things. So, so in our world today, we are seeing a, a rampant, gross sexuality, if you will. I, 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 I want to be careful even of some of the things that um, it was just, I can't remember the title of it, but I saw today in a headline or news article, a brand new show that's coming out on Netflix and it's, I, I don't know, I was like, my goodness, you've got to be the, the wicked imaginations of people. Uh, 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 I, can't, I, don't, I can't even remember, but it was like just people like monsters, but it was all about sex, sex between beast and stuff. It's just absolutely the stuff that Leviticus warned us about. This is the day and age in which we are living. Now we look back through antiquity, and we say, oh, well, our world's not as bad as, let's say, Babylon, or let's go back to the Sumerians, or let's go back to maybe Rome. Well, yeah, because they would gather in coliseums 
to watch this stuff happen. We don't gather in coliseums in America to watch all this immoral stuff. We just pipe it into every bedroom, every living room, every household in America, which is worse today, which is worse today. Here it is. This is the world in which we live in. So we have to talk about this. Did God create us as sexual beings? Absolutely. He created us distinctly, male and female. He created us with this purpose. He created us with certain desires. There are certain things that God put in us. Not everything is a result of the fall. Not everything is a result of sinful nature. There was a time in church history where uh, sex was not referred to, not spoken about. It was deemed as something that was unholy, uh, something that was was unclean, but was necessary only for childbirth. And it was almost taught as if this was a sinful desire that comes from fallen man, and there's no glory of God in it. And so it's only necessary to have children, but, but absolutely off limits any other time after that. And that is exactly the opposite of what Scripture teaches us. There were some things that God established before the fall. For instance, he established that in marriage, there would, marriage would have to have work. Marriage would have to have work. And he established that before the fall. There were certain things that he established. My wife brought it up Sunday morning in our lesson when we were talking about things that stood out, out of, I think it was chapter, I can't remember what we were reading when we were reading here. Maybe it was in chapter 2, I think we were reading. And she said one thing that stood out was that the tree was desirable. I think it was chapter 3 we were reading in here. Sunday's lesson was over, Genesis chapter 3. That the tree was desirable, that God would actually, before the fall, put something in the garden that was desirable unto Adam and Eve, and yet he would command them, do not eat of this tree. That God put something that in their flesh they would desire, but told them then, do not eat. That God was setting up an opportunity, if you will, before sin for them to be obedient to him. He was putting a tension in there where they would have to submit to the word of God and they would have to deny their own desires and not put themselves first above everyone else. God established that reality before the fall, as the scripture tells us. So God puts things before the fall. He builds us as men and women, as sexual beings, but, but it was not to be a man without the confines of marriage. Therefore, shall a man leave his mother and, or his father and mother and shall cleave this is important, shall cleave unto his wife. Can you put Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 up there? This is very, very important. Shall cleave unto his wife, singular. Amen? Amen. Singular. I don't know how Joseph Smith missed that one. Amen? I don't know how the rest missed that one. God established 
one man, one woman, and they shall be one flesh. It is a perversion to interpret Scripture any other way. You'll say, well, oh, there was multiple marriages in the Old Testament. Absolutely, and God was not approving of any of them. God called David out for it. God had a specific law. He had specific laws. Here it is. It's already established. He had specific laws in Deuteronomy. When, it, when, when a man becomes a king, he should not add to himself, great, don't greatly multiply silver and gold. Don't use it as an opportunity to get rich. When you were the king, he said, uh, don't amass self uh, uh, great horses because if you have a big army, you're going to want out and you're going to try to build your own kingdom. And that's not what this is about. And the third thing he said is don't multiply unto yourselves wives. The king cannot multiply unto themselves wives. This was put in scripture. Now, there were laws in the Mosaic law that dealt with messy situations. And the law gives command. When someone had multiple wives in that culture, they couldn't just say, okay, I want to be married to this one or not this one, and put them out. And then all of a sudden, they're out there destitute with no economy to support them. And so when you go back and you read in the, in the Mosaic law about the multiple, the situations of multiple marriages, it is always speaking to the situation for the purpose of preserving the children and seeing and ensuring, if you will, that the children are provided for. The law is not endorsing multiple marriages. People look and go, aha, there it is. See, it's endorsing multiple marriages, so this must not mean anything in God's a hypocrisy unto himself. No, that's not true. Here's what we miss when we come to the law. The law shows us the grace of God. The grace of God says, you're in a mess. And it's a mess that I don't endorse, but I will give you steps to take to get out of your mess. That's what the law did. When you go back and you read that law, that law was showing them that God was willing to work with their messes. Praise God. Thank God for that. Anybody else in here thankful that God's worked with your mess? Come on, anybody else grateful? You come and bring a mess to God and you come and thank God. You come in and you give your life to God. You repent, you're baptized, you receive the Holy Ghost. You try to live over overcoming life, but you still got a mess. Thank God for his long suffering that says, I'm not going to cut you out. I'm going to work with your mess to show you a way forward. We can go forward through this by the love and the grace of God. It was never God endorsing multiple marriages. Ever. It was never God endorsing that. And I don't have time to go through each one of those, but I could go through that. that that's just the summary there. God was never endorsing that. So it was one wife. It was one man. It was one woman. So human sexuality was not only created by God as distinct beings, but then it was commanded by God. And we get this from Genesis 2 and 24. For this cause. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. This is, this is the reason. 
This is the reason. Jesus used the phrase, for this cause. It included the partnership of male and females. There is no partnership between a male and multiple females or a female and multiple males. There is no partnership between two males and there is no partnership between two females. That is understood by the text that we have read. If we took the time, we could go on in Leviticus. Let's go to Leviticus chapter number 18 real quick because I think this is necessary in this day and age. We're going to address some, we're going to address some difficult things here tonight in just the next few moments. We're going to address human sexuality. One man, one woman within the covenant and the confines of marriage. God's will, God's intent. He never changed his mind. He never wavered. He never backstepped. He never went silent. All of those arguments that are being used today to promote homosexuality or any other kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage are misguided, misfounded, and a gross use of Scripture. So we go to Leviticus chapter number 18, verse 22. Here he's talking about immoral acts forbidden. He goes through some things. He does talk about adultery, talks about other things. But then in verse 22, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therein. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. So what is this new show that I told you that's coming out on Netflix? It is confusion. It is men and women dressed up, made up as other things to carry out what Scripture says is an abomination. Now, all right, so let's go to Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 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 26. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. Here's Paul, and he's writing to the church... Acts, Romans, here we go, chapter 1, verse 26. He's talking about the wrath of God. He's talking about vile things. He's talking about people who change the truth of God into a lie. And he comes to verse 26, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Now, here is Paul doing what was common in this Jewish world context. He is speaking about things without getting into specific gross details to where adults can exactly know what he's talking about, and yet children can be in the room, and their innocence is not broken. If you go back to the book, there's an entire book of the Bible titled Song of Solomon that talks about human sexuality, and it is written in such a way, it is cloaked in language it is, is written poetically to where an adult can read it and know exactly what it is alluding to, but if a child picks it up, they are not offended and their innocence is not broken. This was a custom. This is a custom that is in, in this practice. In fact, well, let's just go on. So it says, For this cause God gave them over to a vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, to make no, just to leave no room for imagination, it, it says, the men also leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust. So we know what that means. 
one toward another, men with men, working that which is a seemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, despite. Goes on, goes on, goes on. So here's this stuff. What was Paul basing his pronouncement upon? Well, it came upon Leviticus 18. What was Leviticus 18 based upon? Well, it was based upon, obviously, what God established in Genesis chapter number one. Now, I only have a few more minutes tonight, but I do want to get into this. I want to, I want to, I want to address this issue of homosexuality within the church. Um, homosexuality is nothing that's new to humanity. It's been around since you go all the way back. It's part of the reason why God judged the earth the first time with the flood. And you go back, it's replete all throughout Scripture. You don't always see it here, but it is very much in there. Sodom and Gomorrah, God judged them. Fire and brimstone, in fact, I, don't, I won't make the t- take the time here to make the case, but if you go back and look at the language at, uh, of how Sodom and Gomorrah were referred to, there is a strong case to believe that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged so harshly because they had pre-existing relationship or knowledge of God. And they fell from that and turned into something that was vile. And that comes from, I think it's Ezekiel chapter, oh, I can't remember the chapter, but where he calls them their sister. He identifies that there was something, there was some kind of a connection there. And so they were judged because of what has in Scripture is referred to as sodomy, which was the homosexual practice. Now, there's a lot of voices that are coming on today. It's it's entering into the so-called proverbial church at large, where you are seeing it uh, being proclaimed that this is okay. And there are some arguments for homosexuality. So you already put that up there. Okay. So these would, be the ref- these would be the rebuttals to the argument. But before we get into the argument about homosexuality, did Jesus address homosexuality? Let me first take that off there because I want to give you the arguments for homosexuality. And these arguments are not coming from outside the world because if you don't believe in God and we're just an accident, well, then what does it really matter and who really cares? So the real danger right now today that we're dealing with is what is being preached across so-called pulpits from the Word of God. And the arguments for homosexuality are entering into the church. And I I don't want to call any names, but but it is shocking. The United Methodist Church has had a massive division and a split over this issue. It's it's creeping into even uh, uh, stronger, uh, more traditionally conservative Baptist churches. There is even a contingency of, it's unbelievable, of so-called apostolic churches. There's an apostolic uh, uh, homosexual uh, organizations that are around here today. This is crazy. They still believe in the oneness of God. They still believe uh, in holiness and holiness of identity. And then they come to these scriptures. It, it is absolutely gross. And I've had one-on-one encounter in those, in, in, in my experiences. I've, I've confronted this spirit face-to-face, even at times 
uh, in a pastor's office where God revealed something to me that was going on. And so these arguments are coming out and they're making. So, so, so some of the main arguments that you hear is, is the one argument is that Jesus never addressed homosexuality. The other argument is that there's only six passages in Scripture that refer to homosexuality at all, and those really aren't about, none of those are really condemning a monogamous homosexual relationship. And then the other one is that, well, we, we know now that people are just created that way. They're born that way. That's the arguments that are being used in the church. It's a very popular book that just came out. You may have seen it. It's in our local bookstore, Barnes & Noble. It's on Amazon. Um, and the guy that writes it is a, uh, he, he does come from a more conservative Christian tradition. He does believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. This is crazy. In a lot of his ways, he would be a conservative but he out he he is he is uh, a homosexual and he 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 propagates all of these things. So those three arguments: Jesus never spoke about it. The Bible only references six times, and never was it against a monogamous relationship. And then finally, the third one is that, and there's others, but the third one is that they were made that way. Well, first off, here we are in this quest for homosexuality, and science has still not ever produced any proof, although they are looking as hard as they can, that anyone was born that way. There is no conclusive evidence that anyone is ever born as a homosexual. Never. There's no scientific proof. There's nothing. So, But we've taken that lock, stock, and barrel. Well, they are a homosexual. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? Well, as if they were made this way. And, and, and one of the horrible, dangerous things today is now it's almost been accepted that being homosexual or, or whatever else you want to be is an immutable characteristic of who you are just as being black or white or Asian or, or anything else that, that, well, I just am who I am and you have to accept, accept that. And that flies in the face of the fact that God created us in his image. That flies in the face of that fact. So there is no evidence that has come out. They've been looking, they've been searching. There is no evidence that come out. And I said it last week, even if they do try to come up with some kind of evidence that you were made this way, well, the Bible says you must be born again. Sin is sin. So if you want to say, well, I was born this way, well, you're born a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But to say that God created you with these kind of desires, that is not, that is contradictory to the Word of God. Absolutely contradictory to the Word of God. So what happens when, well, your flesh is fallen and sinful, so your, your sin can desire all kinds of things that it doesn't want. Your, your mind, you can let your mind go wherever. That's the wickedness of a heart. That, that's why we come to God. So, but we can't blame that on creation. The next thing is those six, those six passages, those six passages that deal with it, they, they try to make it something else. Like, for instance, this is the absurdity of it, that Sodom and Gomorrah was not judged for their abominable relationships that Leviticus tells us about, but they were judged, literally people will interpret it and say, they were judged for their inhospit. What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Yes. 
that they were inhospitable. They were judged for their bad manners. I know a lot of people with bad manners that are still around. <laughs> that, that is about as far of a stretch as you could take it. And then finally, we'll come to this. Did Jesus address the issue of homosexuality? They say Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Well, okay. He also never said anything about, about pedophilia. So does that mean that that's all of a sudden acceptable now? Well, did he? Well, actually, he did say something about those things. He didn't say it spelled out in the Gospels recorded where he says and uses those words or those accounts, but he says it. Was Jesus silent on homosexuality? Let's go to that slide. Three things. Three things Jesus spoke on this. Number one, did Jesus speak about or on the topic of homosexuality? Well... Considering the fact that there is one God and Jesus made the claim before Abraham was, I am, he was claiming to be the God, eternal, invisible. He was making that claim. So therefore, everything the God of the Old Testament said, Jesus is saying, I said, so did Jesus speak on the issue? Yes, he spoke on the issue. Number two, Jesus endorsed the law of Moses. The law that we read about in Leviticus 18, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, he said, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. You know what he was telling us? He was telling us the law may have been incomplete, in that it hasn't yet been fulfilled, but the law was not incorrect. Hear me? The law was not incorrect. It was incomplete, it was unfulfilled, but it was not incorrect. So many Christians have, have taken the line, well, we're not under the law anymore, that they have literally sidekicked the law out of their vocabulary, out of their study. Well, we can't even go there. We can't even read it. No. Paul said the law is our schoolmaster bringing us unto Christ. He said, if I didn't have the law, I wouldn't have known about sin. And the law taught me that God was willing to work with my sin. That God was dealing, if you will, to step down and deal with my mess. But the law is fulfilled in Christ. So we are not under the law, but that doesn't mean that the law is incorrect. In fact, what did David say? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Am I in the book tonight? Amen. So, so we have to be careful. For, for all those people that have thrown the law out, I may have you thinking here a little bit. There's some things you've got to go back and you've got to look at. A lot of people say, well, you see, the law's messed up. Well, it, it endorses multiple wives, or it endorses this, or it endorses that. No, it doesn't. You've got to go back. Maybe you're reading it wrong, but the, Jesus came along and said the law is not incorrect. We've had a notion in... In, in Christianity, that the law was 
was because it was insufficient or it was incomplete that the law was wrong. Jesus came and said, I did not come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. So what is Jesus doing? He's endorsing the law. So what is he endorsing? Well, that includes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, specifically. He's taking that whole thing. He didn't pick and choose on that. The third thing is Jesus did address the issue of marriage or sexuality, specifically on several occasions, but for one that we will turn to, let's go to Mark chapter number 10 and verse number 2. And the Pharisee came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But look at what he does. He's going back where? To Genesis. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female for this cause. What cause? The fact that there is the reality of opposite sex. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain or they two shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. In God's eyes, God sees them now as a covenant unit. A covenant unit. He sees them as one flesh. And look at what he says in verse number 9. Where, what therefore God hath joined together let not man put asunder. So Jesus here emphatically, specifically declares that because God made you male or female, he instituted marriage, the union of one male, one female, and that marriage is to be a covenant relationship God intended for life. Don't let anything else come in that destroys that or messes that up. So all of the arguments that are used to justify homosexuality from the Scripture are, are, are fall so far short, and they're a gross misuse of what the Word of God says. Now, I've taken time tonight on this Wednesday night to teach to the choir, perhaps preach to the choir, proverbially speaking, perhaps, but this is stuff that is lost on us today, and people will bring this argument up. And there will probably be a time in your life where your child or your grandchild or someone you know is going to bring to you this argument. The big argument that gets people is, ah, Jesus never said anything about this. If it was so rampant in that day and age, if it was so popular, and it was, we know that in the time of Christ in the Roman Empire, that was not something that was just reserved for a few, but, but it was. It was. Uh, they were very much aware, let's say, of this lifestyle. In fact, there was other ungodly, horrific things that they did um, with children that Paul references later on in other places. But Jesus did speak about this. Every time he endorsed the law, he was establishing 
something, amen, that had already been understood. And so whenever somebody uses that, Jesus never said anything against it. Oh, yes, he did. He did emphatically. He did clearly. And so we have to go back and say, okay, what is God's purpose? What is God's desire here? So he addresses the issue of marriage several, several times. Now, is there, can there be salvation for people who are in such a state? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does God save? Absolutely. Does Paul talk about it? Yes, he talks about it. He says, for such were some of you, but you are washed. What does he read before that? He said, he said what? No, where, where's that at? 1 Corinthians 9? Or first, is it 1 Corinthians 6? Somebody know where I'm talking about? Let's go there. Abusers of yourselves with mankind. Doesn't he say that? The effeminate. Know ye not that the unrighteous, 1 Corinthians 6 and 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Don't be deceived. Here it is. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. What is he talking about in the first verse? Sexual sins. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters. In the context of the Old Testament, everywhere there was idolatry, there was gross immorality. Idolatry was always associated with immorality. That's why when they come out of Egypt and they build the golden calf, they weren't just standing around saying, oh, isn't this a beautiful calf? No, they were doing ungodly. They were naked. Nakedness, by the way, nakedness and ungodly or idolatry always go together in the Old Testament. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. He says, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. You can't do this. But in light of all of these sexual sins, go to verse 11. And such were some of you. Can you be saved? Can you be healed? Can you be redeemed? Can you be restored? Can you be delivered? Absolutely. By the way, who's he writing to in this passage? Stand together with me. I'm, I'm coming to a close. He's writing to the Corinthians. If you went to the city of Corinth, the highest point in the city of Corinth was dedicated, am I right, to the goddess Venus? And there was all kinds of immorality in that city. In fact, the city was so bad that Paul, the great evangelist, goes to the city. He walks around, and Paul, in essence, says... Not even God can build a church here. I'm going to leave. And God has to show him a second time and say, Paul, I have much people in this city. And so Paul stayed for a year and a half. He preached, and there was a tremendous, tremendous, great revival. And here we have specific witness that in the New Testament church, amen, they had been delivered from great immorality. In fact, not only had they been delivered from it, they also were dealing with it in the church. And Paul writes them and talks about it. Hello? Yeah. So is this a reality? So you say, well, here we are living in 2021. Look, does God have an answer? Yes. 
God has an answer. God has hope. Amen. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. I thank God for His Word tonight. Come on, don't you thank God for His Word? Hallelujah. Can we lift our hands all across this place right now? Come on, let's just close out in prayer. Lord, I thank You tonight for the truth of Your Word. I pray tonight that Your truth would liberate, that Your truth would strengthen, God, that You would make us, God, sure-footed. I pray tonight that You would give us an encouragement, give us a boldness, but also give us a love. Let us pray, God, with a message of hope, God. Let us stand for truth in this evil day. And Lord, let us share the gospel news, the light of Christ in this dark world. And I pray this tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. God, let every home, let every marriage, let every individual here tonight, God, be living fully in your purpose, in Jesus' name. And somebody say, in Jesus' name. Amen. Clap your hands unto the Lord tonight. Give God glory and praise. Hallelujah. God gets the glory. God gets all the glory. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. Amen. We'll see you Sunday. God bless you. Dismissed.